Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we continue the new series entitled, One in Christ. This week's sermon is entitled, Safe in the Father's Love. In Ephesians 1, 5-6, the Word of God reminds us that our lives are never spiraling out of control. For the Christian, life is resting in the care of a God who brings us into His family through Christ at the expense of His Son and ensures our future together as one forever family under Christ. We are loved with an everlasting love. We share a common destiny. We are forever the family of God. What joins us together is our adoption in Christ. Let's be reminded that we are safe in the Father's hands. Let's worship together. Well, again, good morning, everyone. That song we just sang, uh, Friend of Sinners, is one of my favorite songs whenever Gabe chooses it, I'm always glad that he does. And it has really personal memory for me. A couple of years ago, my sister-in-law was dying of cancer, uh, my kid's Auntie Kathy, and um, she, uh, as she was battling cancer, I sent her that song. And uh, on the day she was dying, she called, they called, she knew she was going to pass, and we got to pray together on the phone, and and that was one of the last songs that she played as she was leaving this world into the next world, that living and dying to be thine. And so uh, some of these songs are powerful for us for different reasons, but isn't it good that in our darkest moments and in our most joyful moments, the gospel rings true for us? And so we're studying uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going slowly for, through the first chapter of Ephesians 1. Um, partly because it is a very carefully constructed uh, song. Some people think it's actually a hymn or a song. In the verses 3 down to verse 14, Paul has one sentence, and it's carefully designed to enumerate all the blessings that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And he, uh, in verses 15 to the end of chapter, or chapter 2, verse 10, Paul prays a prayer that we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, actually grasp the depth of what we have in Jesus Christ. And so um, I am going slowly through the blessings that are listed here because Paul has carefully, under the power of the Holy Spirit, constructed these blessings that if we could appropriate them by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be encouraged. And being encouraged with all that we have in Jesus Christ we would learn to love each other the way that he loved us. So that's why we're memorizing uh, Ephesians 5, 1, and 2 and doing artwork for it because the exhortation is we are children of God and as beloved of children of God in the family of God, we ought to love one another like God our Father has loved us and how Jesus our elder brother has loved us. And so that leads us today to this beautiful doctrine of adoption. And uh, many of you know what adoption is personally, praise God, for you and for what God has done in your life through this. And uh, when we come to uh, the doctrine of adoption, you and I need to stop and realize that all the blessings that we have, forgiveness, redemption, the gift of the Holy Spirit, all of these things have a purpose in bringing us into an intimate relationship with God as Father, Christ as brother and savior and lord and with one another and so uh i i really just want you to think for a moment slow down a little bit and contemplate the doctrine of adoption contemplate it personally uh 
Think about it, what it means for us as the people of God and what it means for us as a community of believers who are seeking to love one another as brothers in Christ. When we get to Ephesians 4 to 6, he's going to be encouraging us in the depth of our love for one another. One of the um, excellent books on redemption, on salvation, is John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And if you've got a little bit of a theological mind, I encourage you to get that book. It's one you should have in your library. But listen to what uh, John Murray says here about adoption. He says, Adoption, as the term clearly implies, is the act of transfer from an alien family into the family of God himself. This is surely, listen to this, this is surely the apex of grace and privilege. We would not dare to conceive of such a grace, far less to claim it, apart from God's own revelation and assurance. It staggers the imagination because it's amazing condescension and love. So, so John Murray says adoption, the doctrine of adoption, is the apex of grace and privilege. To think that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit has invited you and I into family with him. That we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. We take that for granted sometimes. We ought not to. It is a stunning reality that we ought to live under and bask under as people of God. Now, the reason why you need to know the doctrine of adoption, the reason I need to know the biblical doctrine of adoption is that it should be one of the clearest truths out of which you look at life. Uh, the doctrine of adoption it gives you your identity, it gives your eternal relationship, and it is meant to help you negotiate your way through all the uncertainties of this world. Wh- what's going on? How do I understand a world that is, um, seems like it's spinning out of control? What is God doing when my life doesn't seem just, doesn't seem fair, when things seem out of kilter? What, what is, what's going on here? The doctrine of adoption is the, the best explanation you and I are meant to have when we think, what's going on in this crazy world? Or when we feel that the world has taken control of our lives and our lives are spinning out of control. Now, we live in a world where political chaos is everywhere. We live in a world where economic uncertainty is constantly. I mean, how many times does the government have to re-debate its financial situation, right? It's constant. There is uh, discoveries in DNA that tell us that so much of our lives and our health has been determined before we were born. Uh, We live in a highly anxious society. What's the narrative that shapes your getting out of bed on Monday morning? What is it, what's the greatest truth about you that allows you to work in a world that seems incredibly out of control? Last week I talked about the practice of self-differentiation. Before I ever live in a world on the horizontal level, I need to get my position right on the vertical level. Who am I in Christ? How does God see me? Who am I? What is my life really like? The doctrine of adoption is to be the grid by which you live your life. In fact, the way the Bible deals with the doctrine of adoption, the Apostle Paul picks up on it uh, very much and emphasizes it, 
is that the groaning in this life and the uncertainty in this world is not God and is not sovereign dictating things, but God who is sovereign is using the groaning of this world to bring his family to himself. Uh, The way he describes the misery and the groaning of this life is that God is working out the doctrine of adoption. He's bringing his family home. And that'll help you. Doesn't explain everything, but it does dictate to you that while we are in this world, God is still gathering from peoples, unlikely peoples, discarded peoples, deeply wounded and abandoned people. He's bringing them to himself and making them his children. So let let me read to you a key text of the Apostle Paul's, which you will be familiar with, Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 25. Listen to the bringing together of the chaos and suffering of this life and the doctrine of divine adoption. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you pause there. Okay, there's a lot of suffering in life. Paul's suffering as an apostle. But it's not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for what? The revealings of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So just pause there. And we live in a created world that is under chaos and it has been subjected to futility. We're trying to think, why is the world the way it is? And we, we realize it is temporarily in that position anticipating God bringing his children to himself. And when God brings all his children to himself, he's going to make it all new again. Now listen as Paul continues. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the what? pains of childbirth now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly so let me just stop and say it's okay to groan it's a hard life it's a messy world we groan inwardly as we await eagerly what our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not, the hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it with patience. So the way the Bible describes the doctrine of adoption is that we are waiting for the full adoption to be, the process to be finished. When all the children of God are welcomed into the family of God in creation, we're groaning, longing for that reality. And so what, what we're feeling in this world, this is a way to interpret the chaos of life and the world. This is one of the grids the Bible gives you. You and I ought to say, man, we're in childbirth. And as you're in childbirth and you're thinking about the pangs of childbirth and the groanings of childbirth. What are you thinking? There's a better day coming. There's a hope coming. There's a family coming. And God has brought us into the pangs of childbirth in expectation, eager expectation of the adoption of the children of God. Do you have that as a grid for your life? We're groaning 
the groans of childbirth. That's a hopeful thing. That the suffering and the difficulty is all part of God bringing people to realize they can't live without Him. Bringing us to discover that we were made for someone else, something else, something more. We were made for God in Jesus Christ. Our DNA is not our ultimate determinant. It is a factor. The kings and the kingdoms of this world are not the ultimate outcome of our lives. There is a greater king who rules over all things. The economic twists and turns of life are not what shapes us. What shapes us is a God who's building a family in Jesus Christ. And he will use the pain of this world to call out his children from every tribe and tongue and people. Is that not good news? And so the doctrine of adoption is meant to be an encouragement. That's why it's listed in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has granted us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. My dear friends, adoption is the love of God coming to bring children out of a broken world into a family that will last forever. Aren't you glad for that? You need to stop this morning and say, have I memorized, thought about, and applied the doctrine of adoption in my hardest moments? This is childbirth, but God is building a family. This is difficult, but it's not the final story. So here's what I want to do. I want you to walk through and ask the question, how can the doctrine of adoption change the way I see life? How I negotiate the most difficult and perplexing moments, the uncertainty of the world, the anxiety that plagues me. How does the doctrine of adoption shape my life? And here's the first thing every believer should understand. The motivation of God in adopting you is love. Is God's eternal love. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. In fact, the way it flows, you have to go actually to chapter 4 because it's a one long on, run-on sentence with a bunch of participles, but it says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. And so the motive of God under all the madness of the world is the Father's love. Now, let me just stop and say this. There are lots of times where I have thought and you have thought, I am sure, God, how is this loving? Where are you in this? This does not feel like love, Father. And, and so I'm not trying to give you a simplistic answer to difficult situations, but I am wanting you to see in the text that the doctrine of adoption tells us that what, what moved God from the beginning of time when he set his eye on us was to make us his family, and the motivating factor was not pride or capriciousness or all the gods of the, that the, the Ephesians had to deal with that are cruel and corrupt. This God was mot motivated by one thing, the overflowing love of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and while I don't understand under everything that's going on in my life and why God does what he does, I can know this. The only thing that has moved him towards me in all of this is love. In love, he predestined us to adoption. And so the grid out of which you and I are to interpret all the hardship and suffering is the love of God who came for us and will not let us go. 
What do I know for certain? There's a lot of things I don't know for certain. But this is one thing. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's foundational, simple, profound, eternal. The overflow of God's love in all eternity has come into the world in all its brokenness, in all its chaos. And not under it, but over it. And even in the brokenness, it was, you and I, some of you know your testimonies, that it was actually the brokenness that brought you to Jesus. It was in the chaos of the younger brother, the prodigal, going off and finally getting to a point where he was eating pig food and realizing his father's servants were better off than him that he turned and said, I will head home. It's been the story for most of us. But the story started not with us, not with brokenness. It started with love and ends with love. The love of our Heavenly Father. Take your Bible and just turn a couple of pages to chapter 3. This is what Paul reiterates over and over again. He says, he prays this in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Stop. I need Jesus to so work in my life that the foundational core truth of my existence is his love. That I am loved with an everlasting love. And it says here that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, you need to understand that God's love for you is bigger than you can comprehend. There's no sermon, there's no accumulation of sermons, there's no theology text that is going to so enumerate the depth of God's love in Jesus Christ that you could walk out of here and say, I got it now. Now what you're actually doing is living a life where you're getting it now. And getting it now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now if you were in Ephesus, one of these, especially the city of Ephesus, it was one of your core beliefs because the temple of Diana or Artemis was in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, uh, they would have, they had the, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple of Diana. And on uh, Diana, on the statue for Diana, she had on her chest the zodiac. And so if you grew up in Ephesus and you worshipped at the temple of Artemis, your belief was that your destiny was determined in the stars. It was fixed in the heavenly realms according to the zodiac. And so you were taught this and worshipped this all the time, trying to appease, seeing if you could somehow negotiate your destiny out of this curse that's on you. Have you ever thought in your life, man, I'm cursed? You might not say it's the zodiac, but you think the starting point in my life has been against me the whole time. I'll tell you, if, what's the, this is the question I want to ask you. What narrative are you believing, even as a believer, about your life? 
Listen to Clinton Arnold. He says, Paul's teaching on election will provide comforting and instructive counter-teaching to the fears of readers who had formerly embraced astrology, magic practices, and even the worship of the renowned goddess Artemis. Although cultic images of the Ephesian Artemis depict the signs of the zodiac prominently on her chest as a necklace, she provided false hope to those who looked to her to break the inexorable chains of cosmic fate. So if you lived in Ephesus, you were going to worship the hope you could break the destiny, that curse that was on you in the stars. It's interesting, in a recent magazine article, a description how many Americans are now returning to astrology to break the curse that they seize upon them. Here's the article says, mystical, in the mystical services market, which includes astrology, tarot, and palm readings, it's now estimated to be, in the U.S., a $2.2 billion industry with an average growth of half a percent per year since 2017. It says, while the astrological cultural takeover is happening, whether you believe in star signs or not, according to a a forecasting agency, it says 62% of Gen Z and 63% of millennials say their zodiac sign accurately represents their personality traits. Now, Now, why are people doing that? Why are people resorting to that? Because they have this sense their lives are being controlled by external forces. Something has damned them. Something has condemned them. Something has cursed them, and they can't shake it. Paul comes along and says, In love, God predestined you to adoption as sons. Christians, the narrative is not in the stars, but in heaven. The narrative is not in somebody's dictation, but in one who determined before the foundation of the world to adopt you into his family. I have a good friend. His birthday was this week, Bev Preter. He's a uh, helicopter pilot and has flown for years in Papua New Guinea and Indonesia um, flying missionaries. Uh, a few years ago, Bev got invited to go to uh, Kathmandu in Nepal to train helicopter pilots. The reason they sent him in there at that point in time was because they had had crashes with helicopter pilots in Nepal, and the difficulty was because of their religious beliefs, especially in the idea of fate, they were, they were less likely to do like post-crash analysis. Like whenever we have an airplane crash or something, uh, the Air Transportation Safety Board will come in and see what went wrong and do an examination. Over there, they didn't do it because there was such a strong sense that there was fate. So they never learned from their crashes. Our lives are somehow in the hands of fate. The gods, whatever it is. My dear friends, Christians, we come out of that world. Sometimes we fall back into that narrative. I'm cursed. Something's against me. There's no hope. My dear friends, the thing that's designed for us, the the narrative that shapes our lives is the doctrine of adoption. You are not your own. God has loved you from 
before the foundation of the world. In our suffering, we can actually say this is just the birth pangs of something beautiful. God has come to rescue and redeem us. And that leads us to the next thing which I think you and I need to understand because this is, this is the master plan. God's purpose is to make you fully a part of his family. That's the doctrine of adoption. Notice what he says here in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I need to stop and pause this morning and say, if you're a believer, do you know who you are? Do you understand how God sees you? Not the narrative that you grew up with. Not the narrative of what everybody else says about you. Not the narrative that goes around in your head that your imagination goes. What is it that God sees you? In love, He's predestined you to be my son. And you hear Jesus hearing from God, you are my beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And in Christ Jesus, God says the same to you. You are his beloved child. In the Old Testament, there's not a whole lot of laws about adoption. There is a a theme of adoption that comes up that God is going to make people who are not his people, his people. He's going to make them his sons. But if you were an Ephesian, you would only know adoption through the Roman practice of adoption. And in the Roman practice of adoption, you were given the full rights of a son if you were legally adopted into a Roman family. Herman Bavink says this, he says, among the Romans, the families were sharply distinguished from one another. You knew which family you belonged to, and that determined what you could do, what class you lived in, and what was going on. Every family had its own privileges and rights, and especially to its religious practices. Hence, a child could go from one family to another only by way of a formal legal transaction in which the natural father, so to speak, sold his child to the other father who wanted to accept it as his child. In the event the natural father had died, the transition could only take place through a formal declaration of the people in a public gathering. Only in this way could a child be liberated from his duties in one family and subjected to his duties in another family. John Stott writes, in Roman law, which was backing Paul's writing, adopted children enjoyed the same rights as natural children. So, So what's being taught here in the doctrine of adoption is you have been taken from one family and legally been placed in another family. And I believe when you're baptized as a believer by faith, you are announcing and we are declaring and celebrating your adoption. This is your family. Friends, we've got to celebrate that. Look around you. These are your brothers and sisters adopted the same way you were by the love of a father who sent his, one to, his son to purchase you. We're all adopted. But not adopted in just a one family. We're adopted into God's family. 
And he looks at us in love and he sees us as sons and daughters and that ought to cause us to rejoice. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Hear this. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My dear friends, this is you. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. You belong to Him. Is that not good news? I met with Dana Brummett this week. Some of you know Dana. And uh, Dana helped Waterbrook a long time ago do missions in Hungary. And Dana was telling me about one trip when she was with some of the folks from Waterbrook that were in Hungary. She said they got invited by a pastor to go up and minister to a a, a group of gypsies in in Hungary. And she said they traveled up into this community of gypsies. She had a technical name for them. I don't have the technical name. What are they called? The Roman? Roman? Yeah, Roma. So they they went up and, and the people heard that the God people were coming. And Dana said, we came into this community, and she said it was clear. It was kind of a mobile community. It was poor. She said there were emaciated horses walking around. It smelled. She said there was a, a, a place where they were worshiping. They were waiting for like three hours, these people, for when they showed up, and it was kind of like a mud hut. She said it's hard to believe that this community existed right there. So she said, we came into the worship service, and here are all these people who have been waiting two or three years for us, or two or three hours, not years, um, for us, to, they're just sitting there waiting for us to come in and, and, and lead worship. And as the pastor began to lead the service, he turned to Dana and said, okay. She said, okay, what? He said, your turn, you need to say something. So she said she got up and read Ephesians. She said, I just started reading Ephesians. And it was being translated And she said, I came to the part in chapter 2 where it said you were once not a people, but you are now the people of God. And she said, in that part of the world, you know, the Ukrainians don't like the Russians. I don't know if she said the Hungarians don't like the Romanians. She said there's interracial kind of hatred all over the place, but she said nobody liked the gypsies. And she said, as I was reading, I came to you, you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. And she said, they jumped out of their seat and shouted. And she stopped. And the pastor said, keep reading. And she said they had these little wooden things like wooden spoons and they began to pound on their legs. And every time she said you were an outside, a Gentile, you know, but now you belong to God, they jumped up and they shouted. Because they had spent their whole lives not belonging. They knew. She said, that must have been what it was like to read Ephesians. You were an outsider, but now you're God's people. Do you feel something of this, friends? Because in sin, that's what you are. In this world, that's what you are. You're nobody. But now you are God's. We should stand up and shout. Take whatever wooden spoon and hit our legs. However we express it. This This is the good news of the gospel. We who are nobodies are now royalty in the family of God. Now here's the third thing you need to know about your father 
He's incredibly generous. Adoption is a declaration that God spared no expense to save us and to make us his children. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, 5 again. He chose us. It says, sorry, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. Later on in verse 60, verse 6, he'll say, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has bestowed on us in the beloved. You and I need to stop and realize that when God said, I love them and they're going to be my kids, my children for all eternity, and he looked at us as refugees in a world, orphans in a world where sin has brought death and devastation, when God said that, Immediately the son said, send me. They knew the cost. Adoption's expensive. National adoption's expensive. International, some of you who adopted are laughing because you know the cost. It's, not, it's, it's cost, financially is just one of the costs to make it happen. And it can be difficult, emotionally exhausting. I mean, I know some of your stories And God gave what was absolutely precious to make you his child. He gave his beloved son. He gave this to us in Jesus Christ. Listen to Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you realize that if Jesus didn't come and become a man and die on the cross, we would never be children of God. But he says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know when those people jumped up and began shouting? Abba, they shouted, they were adopted in the family of God, they were a people. That's the spirit of God saying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, the father loved you even though he knew it would cost his beloved son. And he pulled out the checkbook and said, I'm all in. I'm all in. And the son said, I'm all in. And he's not ashamed to call you. Hebrews tells us, Jesus isn't ashamed to call you his brethren. He said he was bringing many sons to glory. Aren't you glad for that? Could you just stop for a moment and realize that when God said, you're mine, the son said, okay. They saw the cross. They saw the cost. There wasn't a hesitation. They shifted gears and they went, we will do it all in the Son. You have the most generous Father in the world. That's why Romans 8.32 is my favorite verse in the Bible. If God didn't spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him generously give us all things? My dear friends, your Father is not a miser. He loves you. He would do whatever it takes to make you his own. He did it in his son. You and I need to remind not only is he generous, but he's kind. And you might not pick this up in the ESV. The ESV says that he 
predestined us to adoption of sons in Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The word purpose of his will in the Greek is eudokia. And eudokia, some translations say, like NASB I think says, the good purpose of his will or the good intention of his will. But eudokia carries the idea that it was not just a a cold decree from heaven, but it was coming from a heart. It was the good pleasure of God, or some versions say the kind intention of God's heart. And you and I need to see the sovereignty of God in our salvation. It's not this cold, austere, you know, disconnected doctrine. It's God in His grace bending in, in His love and kindness. And we have a Father who knows our need. Clinton Arnold says, God did not select a people in some austere, dispassionate way God took great delight in thinking of his future people and being kindly disposed towards them. You have a kind father. Those of you who are dads know we have not been kind very often, oftentimes. Wanted to be kind. Some who have not had a father have not known this kindness. But God has never but had a kind heart toward you. The thing that moved him toward you was in his heart of hearts, pure, good, kind intention. Deuteronomy 33. There is no none like God, O Jeshurun. Jeshurun is a word for the people of Israel, which is like a tender word. It means a little one in a sense who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are his everlasting arms. Psalm 104, 14 to 17. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flower, flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over them and it's gone. Just know that this verse will be applied at the end of this week, uh, according to the weather. And its place remembers it no more, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, his righteousness with their children's children. If you're sitting here going, man, I'm weak, I'm struggling, I'm broken, he knows. That's why he came. He understands. His heart towards you and his will towards you is only for your good. We can't sometimes put it together to say, how is it the case? I'm not trying to make this a a religious platitude, but I'll tell you this, from all eternity, that's the way he is. And it needs to shape how we live. Robert Webb says, when we approach God in the intensity of worship, we gather up all the sweetness involved in fatherhood and all the tenderness wrapped up in sonship. When calamities overcome us and troubles come in like a flood, we lift up our cry, stretch out our arms to God as a compassionate father. And I like this, he says, when the angel of death climbs in at the window of our homes and bears away the objects of our love, we find our dearest solace in reflecting upon the fatherly heart of God. When we look across the swelling flood, it's our Father's house on the light-covered hill beyond the stars which cheers us amid the crumbling of the earthly tabernacles. 
He loves us. He cares about us. There's never a more tender father than God. How do we respond? It says to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's all grace. Undeserved, unimaginable, stunning to the praise of the glorious grace. This is Paul's reiteration all the way through Ephesians and it ought to strike us over and over again. It's not just grace. It's glorious grace. It's not measurable grace. It's immeasurable grace. Given to us in the beloved. Bavink explains, the benefits which Christ gives in his fellowship can therefore be very well comprehended only under one term, grace. But that one name then comprises a fullness, a riches of blessings which cannot be surveyed. As for the person who accepts this reconciliation with a believing heart, a series of benefits flow. If you're adopted, you know what comes? He says, indeed, salvation itself. Scripture projects many of them. Calling, regeneration, faith, justification, forgiveness of sins, adoption as children, freedom from the law, spiritual liberty, hope, love, peace, joy, gladness, comfort, sanctification, preservation, perseverance, glorification, and others beside. A total summing up is impossible. For they include everything which the church as a whole and each believer in particular through all generations in all circumstances in prosperity and adversity in life and death on this side of the grave and hereafter into eternity has received and will receive of the fullness of Christ. In other words, the inheritance we have in Jesus is the mother load. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Are you not glad for that? My dear friends, you need the doctrine of adoption. You're not poor, you're rich. You're not nobody, you're somebody. You're not forgotten and you'll never will be. If you understand the Father's love and kindness and generous grace, it'll transform what's happening in your life right now. It will turn your heart from paralyzing fear to joyous praise he sees you he has you he loves you he knows you he will never let you go and all of this groaning will that one day break out in glorious praise do i understand it all no but i understand him and what he's done in jesus christ and it is enough that i know him right through jesus christ let's pray together Our God in heaven, we thank you this day for this glorious doctrine that in love you predestined us to adoption as sons through the Lord Jesus to the praise of the glory of your grace. So I pray, dear God, that you'll change our thinking, change the narrative that goes around in our mind when we're tired, when we're weak, when we're struggling, when we're discouraged, when we fall back into old habits, Show us, dear God, that there's grace and mercy forever in Jesus. Thank you that we can call you Abba, Father. Father, we thank you through Christ. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.